Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is, is Celebrity Memoir Book, Book Club. Club. You were saying it's so weird. I literally was not. You're projecting upon me. I was following your cues. And then I did get a little bit nervous that because we're on Zoom, the sound would clash and what the people would hear would be nothing. Oh, that would have been really bad to hear nothing. Because people come here to this podcast to hear something. This is not a Rihanna album. We do produce. (laughs) Claire, what the fuck is Celebrity Memoir Book Club? It's a podcast, first and foremost. And secondly and second most is a podcast done by two comics. What does that mean? That means we're here to make you laugh. Does that mean we're smart? No. Does that mean we're literate? No. Does it mean that you may chuckle along? Honestly, not even that. But we are trying to be funny. But also we are reading celebrity memoirs and we are going to joke about them. And as comedians who punch up, which means that we find the people in authority and take them down, we may be saying vicious, cruel things. So if you're not prepared, buckle up and get out of town. Get out of town, baby, because it's a cruel, cruel summer. You got out of town. I am out of town. I'm in Chicago. I got my ass kicked immediately by the town. I guess this will be my memoir this week. I'll call it old school family shit. Okay, that's my memoir title this week. I like know my third cousins. My family is really family-y. They really love to keep in touch. They love to do cousins dinners and like cousins means like 30 people. I only have nine first cousins and I love them. If any of my family is listening to this, I adore you. But when you come to town and you haven't seen a lot of people for a really long time, the amount that you have to be like, yes, still living in New York. Yeah, things are going well. Yeah, I have a podcast. Yeah, still doing comedy. Nope, I'm freelancing now. Okay, great. Talk to you soon. It was just like on fucking repeat. It just is over and over and over again. And so then me and my brother will just like go in the corner and get drunk and I'm feeling it, you know? Claire, how was your memoir this week? It was tough. My boyfriend just left for a month. So I guess it's like do or die in terms of acknowledging who I am. (laughs) Every excuse has been stripped away from me. I don't have a day job. I don't have a boyfriend. I don't have a roommate. You're in Chicago. I don't even have friends. It really is like, Claire, if you're not getting your work done now, then you're just not one to work. Then you need to start popping out kids or something. I love that idea that because I'm too lazy to work, I should probably take on a full-time job of motherhood. (laughs) If you can't put together three hours a day to fucking write down some fart jokes, maybe you should make sure a human being stays alive for the rest of its life. Stays alive for the rest of its life. I guess it doesn't have to be that long if you do your job bad. Hey, I kept it alive for every day that it was breathing. (laughs) All 32 of them. Christ. You guys, this week's memoirist, I have nothing but love for her. That's her favorite topic. It's the only word she knows. Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer Lopez. This week we read True Love by Jennifer Lopez by whoever wrote this book I will say like by Jennifer Lopez is probably part of the title before we get into it I guess we should do our typical what did you know about Jennifer Lopez have you ever heard of her okay yes I'd heard of Jennifer Lopez I've always thought Jennifer Lopez was the most remarkably in the right place at the right time woman that's ever existed I've just felt that everything about her career is so remarkably unremarkable there's so much that I like about it but there's so much that if you had just inserted literally any other person there it would have been similar I think I don't think there's that much about the wedding planner that couldn't have had a different wedding planner in it I mean she has some really great songs because Tommy Mottola put a lot of work into making her have great songs 
And I think she has some really fun movies because the industry really put a lot of work into making sure those movies were fun. It was like back in the fucking heyday of rom-coms. I want to believe that these things succeeded because she's talented, but I like don't think that. She is beautiful. She is so beautiful and she's a great dancer. She is truly beautiful in a way that, you know, they're like there's girl sexy and guy sexy. She is all of them. What do you know about Jennifer Lopez? I will always know her as the woman who truly ushered in big butts to white culture in America. <laughs> she was like the first mainstream star that really was like an ass. Oh my God, I forgot that JLo's ass was insured for like $10 million. It really was like who has the best ass in Hollywood. And this wasn't a question people were even asking. Not only was she the answer, but she invented the question. And we were coming out of, of course, the 90s America, where it was all about those rock hard tits. You know what I mean? Yes. You wanted breasts filled with milk that then had been calcified and then fossilized and then just really pinned to your clavicle. You wanted nipples that could poke you right in the bottom of your jaw. Yes. <laughs> and she was the first person who said, boys, what if we turn these tits around? <laughs> Put them on my bottom. So I knew her for that. She had always not been a strong singer, but I mean, Love Don't Cost a Thing is a hit. The problem isn't that she's not a strong singer. She's a performer. She's a performer. She was kind of the end of that era of a pop star who's an entertainer. Yes. Of course, we know now from the Mariah Carey book that she was Tommy Mottola's response to a Mariah Carey divorce. Yeah. They don't hate each other, but Mariah hates her because a lot of JLo's songs were stolen out from under Mariah. And the concepting, the literal sound that Mariah Carey invented, this kind of R&B pop girl with rap influences. I mean, putting a rap verse on a pop song was a thing that Mariah really ushered into the mainstream. And Tommy Mottola just handed it to J-Lo and was like, now you do this too. For those of you who don't know, this podcast absolutely subscribes to the rumors and the conspiracy that J-Lo's first album which came out when she was found as a backup dancer. They asked if she wanted to sing. She said, okay. From this book, I learned that she was 28 when that album came out, which I actually was blown away by. I, I was did not blown know away. Those were all songs that had previously been sung by other people. They took the pre-made album and basically put JLo's face on it. So there's a couple things that I want to talk about before we even really get into the contents of this book. And that is the structure of this book, starting with the cover. First of all, I want to state that this says New York Times bestseller. What the fuck does that mean? What category did they put this in that this was able to make it onto the bestsellers list? Was it in picture books? I mean, this book, I'm calling it if a playbill was also a coffee table book. I'm calling it it's a concert documentary written out. It literally is following the journey of one tour that she did one time and it starts and ends in a perfect circle about that tour it's Miss Americana it's a Demi Lovato concert documentary it's just written into a book though that's exactly what it is and I feel like that's a perfect call it's a lot of glossy photos it's not one single specific event it's a playlist with a narrative it's the Taylor Swift reputation tour Netflix show I also want to state that I do believe that the cover of this book the photograph for the cover I in no way believe was photographed for this book I think that they just found a photo of her like, I don't think she knows this book exists in a very miles-to-go no. way. There's no way in hell. I think she thought she was being interviewed for, like, just a interview magazine story. If she was interviewed at all. It's all PR. It's all fluff. It's not even, like, a New York Times profile. It's somebody from MTV who's 24 and cute was asked to come and be shovel-fed 
the new narrative of JLo's next era as has been tweaked and perfected with a focus group. It was very much like a, who is JLo going to be post-divorce? We'll put this out as a fluff piece. <laughs> yes. And to answer that question, who do you think JLo is post-divorce? JLo post-divorce is who she always was. And I think we need to get into this after we get through the book because that is my big critique of the book. First, before we get into the book, I think we need to get into who JLo was. Just a brief history because this book does follow a very limited amount of time. It's about a year. A year in the life of Jennifer Lopez. So as we all know from the recent Benefer pick, JLo is now 52. She was born... 1969. So she started out as a backup dancer before she became an actress where she got her big break starring as Selena in the biopic Selena. From there, Tommy Mottola kind of offered her a music career. She came out with If You Had My Love, Let's Get Loud, the original J-Lo hits in 1999, 2000. Then she started having both. She was an actress. She was, of course, in Made in Manhattan, The Wedding Planner. And then also she was coming out with these songs like I'm Real, Ain't It Funny, Love Don't Cost a Thing, The Hits. She was married twice. She dated P. Diddy, and she also was engaged to Ben Affleck. Here's where I think it's important. We all know her career, but these are the dates that I think we need to remember. She dated Ben Affleck for two years. They were supposed to get married September 2003. They called off the wedding a few days before it was supposed to happen and then publicly broke up January 2004. She married Mark Anthony June 2004. They were divorced Seven years later, in 2011, in 2011, before announcing the divorce publicly, she decided to do a world tour. So that world tour started at the end of that year. During rehearsals for that world tour, she met Casper, the backup dancer that she then dated for five years. Before she was engaged to Ben, she had been divorced twice. Yes. Next, she did it at Alex Rodriguez from 2017 until a few months ago. And then we all know how quickly she rebounded with Ben. So that is the timeline. This woman has not been single for more than maybe six weeks in her life. I don't know who the first guy was. And the second one is like some choreographer. So she is, she's an oft engaged woman. This book, this documentary, this whatever the fuck it is, tells the story of that year between when she realizes she needed to get divorced from Mark Anthony, when they decide to get divorced, and when she decides to do this world tour in the wake of her divorce up until the end of the world tour. This book is broken up into the five acts of her show, and she corresponds each part of her life to the contents of this act, if that makes sense. Each act plays out a specific character and she talks about the way that that character played a role in her year and her growing into her true self. So it starts with a preface, which is her on the shoot of a L'Oreal commercial to her mother. She admits that her relationship with Mark simply cannot go on. She breaks down. She weeps and weeps and weeps. And she says, you know, I just have to acknowledge this failure. This relationship has to end. And then we embark on this tour, which was going on during the year that her marriage was ending. And I also just want to point out that when she talks about why it's so hard for her to end this relationship, she's sobbing. Obviously, her marriage is ending. A divorce is hard no matter what. She has two kids. That makes it even harder. And it, she talks about how her whole life, all she had ever wanted was a family. And I believe her that like she really wants to have love. That as a little girl, she always dreamed of having like the picture-perfect family. But then she goes, and it meant more than that. It meant that once again, I was going to be judged. I was going to be ridiculed, chastised, and mocked. I could already see the headlines. Jennifer Lopez headed for divorce again. Or the woman who has everything but can't get love right. I was so scared to have another failure, to be scrutinized by the world and disappoint everyone again. You guys, at this point, she'd already had two divorces and a broken engagement. 
Yeah. That is honestly a lot. Yeah. And how old is she at this point? 41 or something. Yeah. I think to be in your mid 40s on your third divorce. But I do think that that gives a lot of insight into what she's going through now. I don't think she's changed because the patterns she talks about in this book that she tries to break and she claims she has broken by the end of the book are patterns that you can exactly see her going through now. But the awareness of what the public will say and how public perception is such a large part of how she makes her decisions. The jumping back in with Ben, it was fully for the public, I believe. That just as bad as being divorced is what people are going to think about you being divorced on magazines. This initial chunk of the book is called Rock Bottom. Her acknowledging that her relationship was ending was her rock bottom. She continues to talk about the media and the way that the media perceives her. So she continues to talk about the media and the way the media has perceived her and the way that that has shaped her career and her life choices. The point of this book is this show is helping her find her way back to herself. And this year is helping her find her way back from someone who always needs to be in relationships. They're creating a version of her that isn't reflected in who she believes she truly is. So whether or not that that is an actual thing or whether or not that's just like the only narrative that this ghostwriter could come up with is TBD. But it's also interesting that in this chunk, she's talking about her artistry, which hilarious term. She's also talking about the way that public perception is affected that she says, I ended up caring more and more about what they wanted and how I was perceived by the public and the media than what I knew was right for me as an artist. And she's talking about all these artistic choices she made for other people and not for herself. And it is so bizarre to me because I don't think she's ever made an artistic choice. Her career was handed to her by Tommy Mottola, her music career. She was already an actress before that. Which I'm not saying she hasn't shaped for herself a certain niche, but I've never viewed her as an actress who is making artistic choices. And I don't begrudge her for that. I love a rom-com more than literally anything, but I don't think that they're like art. (laughs) Well, read her advice to young artists. This is where I go, no, she's never been an artist. So they asked her, what is the one piece of advice you would give to an artist who's starting out and wants to do what you do? She says, my answer is always listen to yourself, listen to your gut, because only you know what's right for you. That's what being an artist is all about. Your power is in your individuality and being exactly who you are. No two artists are alike, just like no two people are alike. That's why there is no competition in artistry. Now, there is a lot to unpack here in terms of what the fuck did I just read? One, obviously Jennifer Lopez has a dream career, but I don't think any sane artist would ever be like, that's what I want to emulate. I don't know. I feel like it's just something that I'd never thought about is yes, I like Jennifer Lopez, but I truly can't fathom a planet in which someone is like, I want to be just like Jennifer Lopez. No, I mean, I can fathom a planet where people want to be like Jennifer Lopez. But who is out there pursuing acting being like the career I want is I mean, yeah, people want to be a triple threat. I think what you're saying is who out there is saying, what is her key to being an artist? I don't think anybody has ever been like, I want to be like Jennifer Lopez, which in itself is such like a commodified product that the idea of the advice to be like, how do you become one of the most sellable plug and chug personalities of the 21st century is to be the most yourself you can be. What she is, is like a generic, good enough at everything, gorgeous woman. You can't be like, be yourself. What she is, is a product. (laughs) That's what I mean is obviously there's people who want to be Jennifer Lopez, but there's not a single person who is like, my power is in my individuality. And that's why what I want to be is Jennifer Lopez. (sighs) And I do think one of the funniest lines I've ever read in a memoir is that's why there's no competition in artistry I know that it's toxic to have competition in artistry like I'm not saying it's a good thing but I have literally never met a person pursuing something creative that has the genuine ability to be like 
nothing that my peers do matters. Also, the irony of someone like Jennifer Lopez, who was created in direct competition to Mariah Carey, and not just like a competition as a copycat version, as the watered-down remake. She was a Mariah Carey type. (laughs) I think it's just like very funny that she also later in this book talks about the way that she's respected as a singer and an actor. The fact that she views no competition in artistry is one of the biggest, most glaring versions of the fact that she has no intention of actually creating anything genuine to herself literally ever. Because obviously at the core of creating something that's true to you, there would be no competition because you're like, this just is who I am at my core. But she has like almost no skin in the game. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think the thing about being an artist is like if you're being true to yourself and you're being vulnerable, there is a risk that's being taken. Yes. And nothing in JLo's life is risk. Her business is so calculated (laughs) that the idea that she would ever be truly putting herself out there, like she hasn't even done a world tour yet. And she's like, we don't have to promote them. They just sell. That's what I mean. And it's also that it's so calculated, but not calculated by her she is not brought into the process until something is determined like this will be a successful thing now let's get Jennifer Lopez in the chair she did American Idol when it was already consistently one of the biggest shows ever they could literally do anything with that show they could put a blank screen up for an hour and be like you're watching American Idol right now and people would have been like I love this (laughs) nothing she has ever done has been even remotely a risk at literally any point speaking of American Idol this is the quote she has about choosing to do American Idol and the world tour she goes I don't know what it is about me, but for better or for worse, in the face of doubt or change, I get these crazy ideas. Don't ask me why, that I should challenge myself beyond my normal limits and do something I've never done before. The idea that to do American Idol is challenging yourself beyond your normal limits and like doing something that's never been done before. American Idol was a bona fide hit maker. And then to do a world tour nine albums in is it's hardly a risk. It's not like she had never performed live before. She knew that the audience lapped it up. So let's get into this tour. She had never done a solo headlining tour before. And so she created this show that had five acts that, like we said, culminates into the true Jennifer Lopez. Each piece is a part of her and it all comes together to show who she really is. And act one is the big Hollywood segment. She wanted to open it with pizzazz and shine. And do you want to read what the five songs were for this chunk? Sure. Never gonna give up. Get right. Love don't cost a thing. I'm into you and waiting for tonight. It was like done in the old Hollywood glamour. And basically the idea is this is who you think I am. This is the JLo you've come to know. Before I take you down who I actually am, I'm going to give you what you think you want, which is diva JLo. So there are a couple pieces from this chapter that I really want to dive into. The pieces that I think are worth pulling apart. She talks about the vibe of the songs that she sings. And she also mentions a couple times that she writes, which is a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, that is just fucking goofy. But she says, I remember Puffy once saying to me while I was making my first album, be careful what you sing, be careful what you record, because it can define you. Can you imagine advice like that? The songs that you record and put out into the ether are what will define you. I mean, that's... I don't think he means like publicly, like your music is how people will see you as a musical artist. I think he's saying what Hannah Gadsby said in... What was that goddamn Netflix special she did? Nanette. Nanette. That the point is that if you're singing sad songs all the time, it will make you a sad person. Not necessarily your public yeah. perception, but that these will 
dominate the rest of your life. So seeing who you want to be. I think that is what Nanette is getting at. Puff Daddy said it 20 years earlier and much more succinctly. So I agree and I disagree because I think if you're like a strong artist, then you can drive the narrative where you want to drive it. Obviously, Taylor Swift did get bogged down by singing these breakup songs, like these highly specific breakup songs. But then she was able to, as an artist, turn it and create this narrative where she's, I'm not the girl who just sings about breakup songs in the way that you guys have just picked apart the fact that these songs have happened to be a couple of big hits. You're not hearing me. No, I know. I know what you're saying. And I'm saying you're correct. And I'm saying the way that Jennifer Lopez takes it. She says music isn't just songs. It's your life as an artist. In many ways, you sing your future. And she says, yeah, you sing your future. I believe that. And it always rang true with me. And she says she never wants to record anything negative or depressing because that's not what I want my life to be about. I agree with your interpretation. And I agree with what Puffy is saying. I'm just saying that the way that Jennifer Lopez is like, you can't sing anything sad because it'll make you sad. Yeah, because she doesn't have any strength as an artist to create any holistic storytelling or reflection because she's not an artist. She's just a performer. I also think like she's not that deep of a person. I know this is a not that deep of a book, but I also don't think she has it in her. But I also do think that she wouldn't even pretend. I just think it's a really interesting chunk to be like, you can't sing a depressing song because then you'll be sad. And it's like, that is true. But also to be like, I got to stay away from a range of emotion. Otherwise, there'll be emotion (laughs) is bizarre. She also says something really insightful. She said, in the same way, negative influences can bring you down. Having positive people around can lift you up. I mean, she's got a lot of good advice. (laughs) She talks about searching for love. And she says, throughout my life, I've had few serious relationships. Each relationship was different and each relationship had its issues. But there was one thing they all had in common. They all had a passionate intensity that I mistook every time for my happily ever after. And watching her do it again right now is hysterical. These guys would do crazy things for me, like releasing hundreds of doves outside my window or buying me a Bentley or two or giving me rare diamonds, throwing me giant parties or sending me private jets to sweep me off somewhere. But the problem was that isn't real love. It's just passion. And I didn't know the difference yet. So I love that yet as if by the end of this book, she's learned what the difference is. And I have to say, 11 years later, I do not think she's learned what the difference is. I want to go on record and say I do believe A-Rod loved her for her. I think he loved her as closely as she could be loved. I've always said to me that's like the one Hollywood power couple that I stand by. I do think she just had to accept that he was going to cheat. I think they just like needed to figure that kink out. But I do actually think he came as close to loving her because I think he loved her power. I agree with that. Every chapter in this book has these hilarious lesson asides where I feel like the ghostwriter just they need to fill a certain word count. There's just these chunks in here that I feel like we really meet the ghostwriter. I think at one point J-Lo mentioned that she likes running. So we have this huge aside about how she ran track in high school. And ever since then, she's always just been running, running, running. And I'm like, I think at one point Jennifer Lopez might have been like, I got to go on a run. And the ghostwriter was like, let's see what we can do with this. (laughs) After this entire page, it's really just the same sentence over and over and over again. No, this whole book is I just want to dance and love and dance again. But there's this one paragraph here that I think if I were a ghostwriter, I would have written this and been like, this is a good one, man. Put this in your portfolio. She says, passion is a pendulum that swings both ways. As beautiful as it can be, it can also get very intense. Yet through thick and thin, I chose to stay in those relationships because how can you turn your back on a love so big, so amazing, so real? And it's just like... I don't know. I really feel like the ghostwriter was having a great time here. Dude, I've got a line. I rushed into each relationship with optimism and hope, always thinking I'd found what I was looking for. And I was always disappointed when they ended, wondering what went wrong. 
girl, you still don't know. Like, I don't understand. I wish she had met this ghostwriter because this ghostwriter has some insight that I actually think she could have used. Unfortunately, she has not ever read this book. In the same way that I hope Busy Phillips sees my TikTok about her, I hope J.Lo reads this book that she says she wrote. Every once in a while, there's like a tidbit that I think is actually quite revealing and she didn't mean to put in. Yeah. She talks about growing up. They live in the Bronx in a small apartment and she has two sisters, Linda and Leslie, and they all shared a bed. And she says, to this day, I can't stand sleeping by myself. I'm always looking for another person to be with me. It wasn't that I preferred to be with someone else. The problem was I hated not to be. I actually do think that that's true. I do think that she never learned to be alone. And she also gives us some insight into the ending of her relationship with Ben Affleck and the start of her relationship with Mark Anthony. She does say Mark came into her life three days after she should have been at the altar. Yeah with Ben re-met him well she says they called off the wedding just days before they were supposed to walk down the aisle let's be generous and say the total was seven days so maybe four days before they called off the wedding and then three days later after they were supposed to get married she re-meets Mark Anthony I have a quote from that page I was never single for long and whenever I got together with someone that was it we were instantly inseparable monogamous together for the long haul I never thought well, let me take some time to see if I really want to be with this person. Do I even like him? Is he right for me? I didn't see this behavior for what it was, an act of not really loving myself. It does seem pretty clear to me that this ghostwriter has no idea who Mark Anthony is. She said, I'd always liked Mark, finding comfort in his humor. Is Mark Anthony known for being funny? That's what she said. She claims he always makes her laugh. To go back to the fans thing, she goes, Mark and I weren't the only ones who really wanted this marriage to work. Our fans were invested in it too, and I didn't want to give that up. At this point, obviously, we know that the divorce is imminent, but she just keeps saying sometimes things just don't work. Like she literally will not give up a lick of detail. Supposedly they broke up because he wanted a traditional housewife and she wasn't going to be that for him. That's just a thousand times more than anything in this book. She just keeps harping back on the same things of like, sometimes you try your hardest and it just doesn't work out. And it's like, what did you try? What wasn't working out? Like there's not a single detail. I would like to pop quiz you true or false. Do we believe this happened? She talks about when they were doing the Dance Again tour. At the end of this section, after waiting for tonight, it was so intense. There was such beautiful, electrifying laser show that, quote, whenever we performed this part of the show, people started falling out left and right, feigning in front of the stage, right in front of me as I sang. Every night I would see them fall and they'd be carried off and revived backstage. Do we think that that's true? That every night people were literally passing out at her show? That seems dangerous. Like, was it the lighting? Was it, was, were people having seizures? <laughs> They were all having epileptic fits and J-Lo's like, they love me. <laughs> she says, at first it freaked me out. Big Hollywood was out of control. And the funny thing is that seemed right because that was how it had felt in real life. And it's like, excuse you? It felt right. You were watching people just like lose consciousness and you were like, my God, if that ain't what we were going for. <laughs> so the next section back to the Bronx, baby. So now we've seen big Hollywood. We know who we think JLo is, but let us show you who she really is, who she are. JLo pairs it down and takes it back to the streets. She's wearing urban couture. The songs are going in. I'm real. All I have feeling so good. And ain't it funny? And of course, Jenny from the block. There's a lot that I have to say about this chapter. One is that she's really hyping up the boxingness of it. There's a lot of boxing, shadow boxing, boxing attire, a boxing ring. The vibe is very much I am Jenny from the block and I don't go down without a fight. I fight for who I am, for what I believe in, blah, 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 blah. She mentioned some of her first influences, the Sugar Hill Gang, Rapper's Delight, etc. But this is a chapter that I think is really interesting. I don't think they thought anyone would read it. It literally makes no <laughs> sense. So she's talking about 
when she goes through a breakup or when the rug gets ripped out from under her, going back to who she is and who she was really, which is just a girl from the Bronx. And she said, that girl never worried about what the future was going to hold. I was always in the present, always knowing somehow that things were going to work out. Life was visceral. There was a Bronx mentality, taking each day as it comes. She talks about her schedule, her life there. And then she goes, I was relentless, reaching, always reaching, trying to get that brass ring. Nothing was going to stop me. You work for a living. And then when you're making a living, you don't stop. So this chunk really goes from taking each day as it comes, living purely in the present to running forward, trying to get that ring, never stopping. And I'm like, okay, were you always striving to get out or were you like, this is life and I'm just living it as I live it? It literally makes no sense. Well, yeah. So this whole section is about her hustle and how she's a hustler. And it's like taking us up through how she became JLo as we know it. This is where we learned her first album didn't come out until she was 28 years old, which is crazy. I was impressed by that fact. When she's working so hard to succeed, this is where she realizes she never even stopped to ask if she loved herself. And she gives this, you know, the girl from the Bronx would have never let anybody treat her like dirt. She would never lose herself in a relationship. She would never feel like her whole world was shaken by anyone. Was I really still that girl? I have a question to ask about still being that girl. By the time she met Ben Affleck, she was 30. And at that point, she'd already gone through two divorces. <laughs> so you know that she's like, nobody could treat me. I don't know. I think she'd been treated pretty badly already. But she goes, I always thought so, but then I remembered a conversation from years ago, back at the beginning of my career. I was in a meeting with my agent and stepped out for a call with my boyfriend at the time. Through the glass door, my agent could see that I was arguing and pleading. She asked my assistant, does Jennifer have low self-esteem? My assistant looked at her like she was crazy. Later when my assistant told me that she had said that, we couldn't stop laughing. Me? Low self-esteem? That's so stupid, I told her. But was it really? The agent saw something I didn't. She was a little bit older. Maybe she'd, she'd been through something like that herself. Or maybe she'd seen it at others. Who knows? All that mattered was she knew it when she saw it in me. So there are a couple moments in this book where Jennifer bravely admits to the fact that she might not have the best self-esteem. It is her greatest character flaw, I think, according to herself. Yeah. The thing that makes me laugh about that is the idea that an agent will look to your assistant as if it's diabetes. <laughs> is that a chicken pock? Does Jennifer have low self-esteem? <laughs> Has she been diagnosed with low self-esteem? <laughs> There's a pill you can take. It's called cocaine. I also want to point out that she says, I know I'm not perfect, but I know I was a good girlfriend, a good wife. I tried my best. I always put up that old Bronx fight. I went to the mat for every relationship I was in. I asked myself the hard questions. How can I fix things? What can I do to make the other person happier? Or how can I take care of their needs? And she talks about how she would blame herself if it didn't work out. She talks about really just doing everything she can and like viewing the end of a relationship as failure and just trying her hardest to not experience that failure and how she worked so hard at it. And I'm just like, how hard could you possibly have worked to, by the time this book is coming out, to be doing your third divorce? <laughs> Plus there was another failed engagement. It doesn't seem like you did everything you could. Yeah, give up your career, you dumb bitch. I'm sure Mark would have loved it if you were home. And I'm not saying she should have done any of those things. Like I'm not saying any of these relationships should have lasted, but I do think it's very funny to be like, with every relationship I was in, I fought tooth and nail to make sure it didn't go into the dumpster again. And For at least three or four months. <laughs> I have to say, and I think it might be because my parents are still together. So I feel like I take for granted a marriage that lasts. Weirdly enough, I did not grow up around a lot of divorce. Same. I know it's a big deal, but I feel like I don't value it the way I should. I'm probably going to end up divorced because I don't know how hard you need to work in it. My grandma, when she was dying one time, she was like, it's so amazing that I went through this divorce, but all three of my children, none of them ever got divorced. And I was like, yeah, because you traumatized them. <laughs> they were like, we can't fuck up like that. 
I don't value that quality at all in a person who's like, I tried everything. And it's like, okay, so I don't know. Good for you. Who gives a shit? And you but also cares. there's parts of this book where she's like, it just simply wasn't working. So I had to let it go. And it's like that I do agree with. Yeah. Like, I do think that if a relationship just fundamentally isn't working, let it go. It is strong to let it go, to fight tooth and nail for something that blatantly is bad for you and is hurting you and is making your life worse is the wrong choice. Yeah. She's like, I had this Bronx fight in me. I was going to stay in this toxic relationship till I died. <laughs> it's like, well. God bless. Good for you. Like, and it's so important to her that we know that she did everything she could, even though, as you point out, she didn't sleep on it. I mean, truly <laughs> doing everything she can in about a week or two. And if not, call it. She did everything she could except for like, make it through one L'Oreal shoot without getting a divorce again. <laughs> People really are like their biggest fear is having people think they didn't try as hard as they could. Do you know who Mia Khalifa is? Of course you do. I love Mia Khalifa. For those who don't know, she's that porn star, but she's had like this huge renaissance on TikTok. She's like a porn star slash influencer. But she's really cool and fun now. She just got a divorce and they were married for exactly one year and they put out this joint statement about how they tried everything. And they said in the like two paragraph statement three different times, we tried everything. And I'm like, first of all, you made it one year. And second of all, who gives a shit? Unless you have kids, you don't owe anybody a marriage. They didn't even have their wedding yet. So nobody even got them a gift. Nobody cares. I don't care if you tried everything. If you didn't like it, you're 27, try again. It means nothing to me if you put your whole heart in it or if you looked at him one day and just said, mm, I want to try again. None of it matters to anybody. Who gives a shit? Yeah. But it's so important to people to have you think that they cut off an arm to try to make. They're like, take marriage lightly. And it's like, you could, if you want, like you could take marriage lightly. Like I know it's a legally binding situation, but also. But also clearly you did. If your marriage only made it one year, then clearly you did not do any due diligence. It's not like you could be like, well, we became different people or children happened or our circumstances changed in ways we could have never predicted. What was happening one year ago that you did not have one year of foresight? (laughs) But yeah, J-Lo put her whole heart in all four of these failures, so. Do you know what else she put her heart into? Deciding it was time to get pregnant. She said that they had a lot of trouble. They decided to have a kid. She had some trouble getting pregnant. She doesn't mention that she was in her late 30s at the time, but. They were born in 2008, and she was born in 69. So she was 39 when they were born. So she and Mark had decided that they wanted to have a family, and then she was having a lot of trouble getting pregnant, and she said, you know, maybe I'm not meant to have kids. I mean, I have this amazing career, wonderful friends, lots of extended family. Maybe that's asking for too much. I guess my life is going to be about other things, my work and my career rather than having kids. Her dad said, why can't you have both? And it's like genius. I can't believe she'd never thought that before. And then she claimed she got pregnant right away. And it was like, because mentally she had never really thought that she could have a baby. But the second she realized she could, she did. So the second she said, why can't I have both? She got pregnant immediately. And I'm like, are you literally trying to tell me that there was no medicine involved? All these twins, they're all in vitro. I don't believe that any celebrity twin is an in vitro. I know Beyonce said her twins were a surprise. I know. I think all of these boy girl twins. Also a 39 year old. A 39 year old having. You barely had any eggs left. And you're going to say two dropped at once. Two at once. I call bullshit on this one, Jenny. But here's something interesting is that. She talks about how when she first started showing up publicly as a pregnant woman and a mom, people started really liking her for the first time. I wasn't old when she was in her prominence in the early 2000s. You know what I mean? I was still kind of, I was aware of her, but I feel like I didn't have that critical analytical memory bank of an eyeball that I have these days for the tabloids. I guess people were really mean to her all the time. She had all these failed marriages, failed engagements. But she says when she finally came out as somebody's mom, people started clapping. They liked this Jennifer, the married woman 
pregnant with twins, all safe and nice rather than wild Jennifer running around in clubs. It's funny when you're single and out there doing your thing, people feel okay making you a target. But when you're somebody's wife, somebody's mom, they back off a little bit on criticizing you. It was new for me and it was nice. She also has this one chunk that I think is really interesting where she was standing next to a smoker and she was pregnant and she moves away very quickly. It was just instinctual to protect herself and her body from this smoke. And then she realizes, why did I never think about that for myself? Why were my health and well-being not important? I love these babies so much and I didn't want anything to harm them. She's like, why did I stand next to smokers when I wasn't pregnant? And it's just like, I guess they just really needed some content to fill in here. That's funny you say that because you know what I had to say next? You want to talk about filling in content? So this section of back to the Bronx section is called Jenny from the block in the Jenny from the block section. There is a large quote bigger than the normal font that says, I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the block quote from the song, (laughs) Jenny from the block in the section, Jenny from the block, Jenny from the block is on this page four times in three fonts. And then she just keeps rambling. Like this whole section is just a ramble. This section about moving away from the smoker, being Jenny from the block. It's about her standing up for herself and finding strength in herself. She says, I needed to find that glimmer of self-respect buried deep inside that would allow me to say, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. I need to learn how to stand up for myself in a different way, but I didn't know how. What is she talking about here? We literally never find out. There's never any specifics. She says, it was easy to blame other people for treating me in ways I didn't like. But now I was seeing it. I was the one at fault for like letting them treat me that way. But we don't get specifics about like which people, what way. She's just saying there are times people have been not nice to me and I've let them be not nice to me. And now I don't let them be not nice to me. But those people to those figures, I say, no. What are you talking about? Give us a story, dude. There's not one specific in this whole book. It's actually incredible. She ran track in high school. She shared a bed. She had two babies. She's been married. She's been engaged. She did a tour. These are the concrete things we know about her. She was on American Idol. Nothing that you couldn't find on her Wikipedia was included. They said, look to the ghostwriter. We're going to give you her Wikipedia page. We're going to give you the general sense of a middle-aged woman reclaiming herself after a tough divorce. So just like take that narrative and run with it. And you can use any lyric from any song. And I bet they did meet one time like in an airplane from very close together cities. I would say from like Paris to Berlin, they're like, you will get that flight's worth of time to chat with her. Are you ready for act three? Funky love. The set list isn't long. Yeah. So there's only two songs. (laughs) This is a two song chunk. We've got hold it, don't drop it. And if you had my love, she loves love she said I have more than 60 songs about love or with the word love in the title if you had my love could this be love no me ames love don't cost a thing I need love I love baby I love you loving you wow even I surprised myself on that one I guess I had a lot to say on the topic you had a lot to say on the topic it's so wild she brings this up a couple times being like I like to write about this I've written about that and it's like you've written what dude what are you talking about What is this book? Truly, this person like control F her discography page on Wikipedia. And we're like, how many times does it say love? And so this part of it is where she's really paring everything down. And she said she would sing this song. uh, Hold it, don't drop it. She goes, that was my very first song I ever sang about love. A lot has happened since then. And then we'd all share a laugh because we've all been through it, right? And then she goes, yeah, I'm up here on stage, but I'm human. And this is the one area that I can't seem to get right for some reason. 
it's the moment in the show where I start to bare my soul. She goes, I know maybe I haven't made the best decisions. Maybe some things haven't always worked out, but I'm right here and I'm saying it. I'm not ashamed and I'm still trying. Good Lord, is that true? She is still trying. <laughs> this is also the section that she talks about her decision to go on American Idol. And I want to read this part. When I first got the call to do Idol, it seemed like no one around me thought it was a good idea. A lot of things were in transition. Max and Emmy were toddlers. My music and acting were still in a lull. And I was concentrating on my family, traveling with Mark while he toured. It was a strange time. And I thought doing Idol would be a new challenge, something different. So this is what she told her team. We're in a new era, I told them. Television is the new radio. I mean, in 2011, she made $12 million that season. <laughs> then the next season, she made $17.5 million. For some reason, I knew it would be okay. I knew that doing the show would bring other benefits too. Were the other benefits $12 million for like four weeks of work? <laughs> I also want to point out that the song Video Killed the Radio Star came out in 1980. <laughs> something in her said, I think TV, it's here to stay. And I think we might get something pretty good out of me being on TV. Like $12 million. $12 million. <laughs> And then she does talk about how this surprising benefit of being on Idol is that people got to know the real her, not the performer her, not the actor, not the singer, but the, the real Jennifer. And they liked her. They really liked her. Reality TV was great because it turns out she's not a diva. She's nice and we all love her. It also turns out Steven Tyler is cool, but difficult. Here's what she says to say about the experience. She goes, it got me back in touch with myself. It gave me back a little bit of self-confidence I had lost over time. A little bit of grounding I had been lacking since the big Hollywood whirlwind took over my life. I hadn't even realized how much self-confidence I'd lost until it finally started coming back. She says that people were looking for a diva, but they found the mama instead. This is our first shout out to her friend, Leah. We know Leah. Yeah. Remini. We don't get a last name in this book. Leah could literally just be her assistant as far as the JLo readers are concerned. And so she says that the reason her and Mark broke up, this is where she starts to get into the breakup because her first season on American Idol was the last season of her marriage to Mark. Yeah. And she says what really kicked it all off was they've been trying and they've been trying. And finally, one day he says, I'm not happy. And she said, the thing is in my relationship, I was still stuck in the same pattern. I had been stuck in my entire life. My own happiness and sense of self-worth still depended on how happy he was. So when Mark stated so clearly that he wasn't happy, it broke me down completely. So this is the narrative she likes to pitch is that she was trying. She's the trier. She gives it her all every single time. But when Mark said he wasn't happy, finally, she gave herself permission to be like, but am I happy? And she was like, if I'm trying so hard and I can't even make him happy, then what are either of us doing here? But of course, yes. she was the one who did actually file for divorce. And she is the one who did actually tell him that they were getting divorced. But he started it. What if he was just like not happy that day? What if he was just like, I'm grumpy today? And she was like, this is it. <laughs> My out. And so then she goes to the set list. Okay, he's to stay. Is that right? Am I, you think I'm saying that right? Okay, he's to stay. I don't think you're saying that right at all. Act four, okay, he's to stay, I would say. And then also, until it beats no more. She would do the song where she yes. would go and like acoustically sing If You Had My Love. And basically she's like pleading with the audience. And this is where she really breaks it down and admits she's raw. She's real. She's vulnerable. I want to ask real quick a question before we get into this chunk fully. What do you think she thinks acoustic means? There's a guitar in it. I think she means like a guitar without a non-electric guitar. Okay. And what do you think she thinks acoustic vocals are? Vocals that go paired with a non-electric guitar <laughs> <laughs> i just think the idea of her singing acoustic at like a stadium tour it's just hilarious I, I know she's talking about just an acoustic energy but the way she just keeps using that word i'm like 
Oh, Jennifer. So they announced their divorce. She's on American Idol. It's the end of her first season. They wanted to end the season with a big banger of a performance. So they were going to have all of the judges perform. So it was going to be J-Lo, Steven Tyler, Randy Jackson or some shit, whatever. Steven Tyler would not agree to a song. So they said, J-Lo, we want to make you happy. You perform whatever you want to perform. So she was going to do a big performance. Then she decides to get her husband involved. And she says, wouldn't it be great if me and Mark Anthony did a performance? And they have a song together. So she thought it would be great if they performed their song together. He didn't want to perform that song. He wanted to perform one of his songs. And she was like, maybe I'll come in on vocals during the second verse. And he was like, what if you just don't sing at all? And you just dance while I sing. This performance that was supposed to like cap off this season of American Idol that was potentially going to be all of the judges performing, then was going to be J-Lo performing, became Mark Anthony performing with J-Lo as like a featured backup dancer. But Mark disagreed. And a very matter of fact way, he said, you know, this is a guy's song and suggested that maybe he should sing it and I could dance. At the end, she goes, Mark was amazing and it turned out great. But later I realized that performance should have been the culmination of an amazing year in my life and my career. And for some reason, it just wasn't. Okay, well, not for some reason. It's because it wasn't a performance that you were really in. You were a backup dancer on your own fucking TV show. <laughs> and so she never outward says what I said at the beginning of the episode that the problem in their marriage was that he was controlling and he wanted to be the alpha and she was getting more and more successful and I think specifically American Idol like relaunched her of course out on the floor was coming out at this time like she was like back in the game after taking a small break to get married and have her babies and I think he couldn't stand it and I think this performance is the one small insight she gives into what was happening behind the scenes which is that he wanted to be number one and you can't be number one and married to Mark Anthony. So this isn't necessarily an insight about that relationship, but for the KSC stay performance, she depicts an abusive relationship. She actually depicts two abusive relationships. So the dancers during that performance, there's one couple where a man is abusing a woman and one couple where the woman is the abusive man because she wants it to be even. She says equality first. Women can be abusive too. And she wants to portray the truth about abusive relationships while also not painting men in a negative way. Respect. (laughs) This is another part where it's like, first of all, clearly abusive relationships, it seems like that's really important to her. I feel like to build it in as this big number means it means something to her. She says, I've never been in a physically abusive relationship, but I have been in many where there was definitely emotionally and verbally abusive and emotionally toxic traits. Yes. She says, I know what it feels like for your soul to be diminished by the way your loved one is treating you. And it's like, expound, bitch. Yeah. For example, when who said what? (laughs) Give us the dirty, dirty deets. I wish the ghostwriter had just written their own relationship. And just like, like that one time when we were in Colorado camping and you said that I ended up just like my mother, someone who couldn't keep money. <laughs> Jay was like, this didn't happen to me. And it's like, well, it happened to somebody. And this is my story now, bitch. There was a bear attack need- and you threw me in front of him. <laughs> I need the gossip from somebody's life. I don't even care who at this point. I just need something. This chapter seems to be the most honest about the inequalities in their relationship and the fact that she was silently suffering but once again all we can do is assume and you know what happens when you assume you make up your own stories that are hopefully by the ghostwriter what's up in your life ghostwriter she also ends this chapter talking about how having kids it's important to set a good example for your kids and and how she loves her mom All right, so now that we've broken it down and gotten acoustic, whatever that means to you, now that we've gotten emotionally (laughs) acoustic. (laughs) Now we turn it up to 11, baby. Let's get loud. Section five. It includes Baby, I Love You, Let's Get Loud, Poppy, and On the Floor. 
so with every set list, there's like one specific quote from the section that they they put up there as a text graphic. I am grateful for the tough experiences in my life. They taught me some of my most valuable lessons, but I can't let the negative experiences haunt my memory and fuel regret. It's time to extract the good from the bad and leave the rest behind. I'm taking all the positives with me and I'm forging ahead. What are you saying? <laughs> I swear to God, I feel like this is a Mad Libs that was like a generic style Mad Libs. It's like, okay, can we go in and take literally any specific event? Oh, this entire book is like, you know, when you're in a relationship, there are things there's a there's a person and another person. And those two people, sometimes they have a dinner together. Sometimes they don't have dinner together. But on every day, they <laughs> every day they're hungry. <laughs> I'm just like, that. that's even too specific to mention food like that. So like when you're in a relationship, you look at the other person who's your partner and you say, when I think to myself, I think things. <laughs> and then I look to you and I think more things. And together we walk forth. With thoughts in our head and words on our mouth. And when he said the thing that was the final thing to be said on that topic, that's when we both knew. <laughs> the topic was resolved today. The next day. <laughs> Similarly, can I tell you what I have underlined on the next page? It's not even an entire <laughs> quote. It's just literally the title of an album. She had an album called This Is Me Then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so this chapter is called Turning Point, but it really, there's a little bit of a callback to the first section, Rock Bottom. We have another little appearance from our gal, Leah Remini, who, I've said this before, I do think J-Lo is Leah's best friend. I don't think Leah is J-Lo's best friend. I think her kids are her best friends, or her mom. So actually, here's my favorite part of the book, because this is where she fixes her life of bad patterns and toxic dynamics and like four to six weeks. So this was inspired by bestie Leah. Basically, Jennifer Lopez is talking to Leah and saying, like, everything is a mess. I feel so anxious. I have anxiety that I've never dealt with before, and I don't know how to handle it. And Leah says, that is great. It means you're hitting rock bottom. You know, Jennifer, you have to hit bottom before you can make a change, and it's finally happening. So Jennifer is like, yes, I do need to make a change. This is the bottom. I'm going to go to therapy and learn these three lessons. So she goes, during that period, while I worked really hard on promoting On the Floor, which was fast becoming the best-selling single of my career, I was working even harder behind the scenes, discussing, analyzing, doing exercises, everything I needed to do to understand the turns my life had taken. And then she goes, there was a lot of problems. One, I discovered I had low self-esteem. Oh, this is hard. Which I had never really pictured myself as having. Two, I worked on learning what integrity meant, which would cause a massive change. And three, the biggest light bulb of, of all was that I wasn't recognizing the value of my own love. So she starts doing some affirmations and pretty quickly it works. So if anyone out there is struggling right now, try affirmations. She goes, I never really realized that I was great, that I was good at my job and my love had value. By the way, at this point in her life, I think she had the number one single. She was on the number one TV show and then she had just been voted people's first most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> I do want to say, like, I do respect the idea that even JLo has self-esteem issues, that the external stuff is what's giving you value, then that can be taken away very quickly. It does have to come from inside. And I think if you're getting so many accolades and you haven't been forced to do that internal work, it could actually be worse because if you've never hit a rock bottom and been forced to look in and be like, do I think I'm valuable? If you've always been getting external validation, then that's just as dangerous because everything will end at some point. At a certain point, her olive oil skincare routine will stop working. She goes... I was so concentrated on doing everything in my power to make another person happy. And then she goes, 
But why? I'm no psychologist, but I think much of it can be traced back to my upbringing. As the middle child, I was always trying to be perfect and get everybody's attention. It wasn't good relationships, but on the flip side, it was good for my career. Then she goes, I had stayed in just about every relationship for too long, knowing somewhere deep down that I should have walked away. How had I not seen it before? I don't know. But now that I see it, I knew I was never going to miss it again. It's another one of those where she's like, there were problems. And once I saw the problems, I said, no more problems. And the problems were gone. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Say a specific. And then later she goes, I was doing the work and the work was working. In four weeks, I realized (laughs) I had started to love myself. And now I did have self-esteem. Four weeks is what it took. Four weeks is what it took to undo all the drama of three divorces. Too bad she didn't take those four weeks courses like in high school or something. Little by little, I had been building up my self-esteem and my self-confidence. I'd never known I had a problem there. She's also obsessed with some self-help guru named Louise Hay. And she does a book called You Can Heal Your Life. And J-Lo is obsessed with her and apparently always reading self-help books. And so her assistant gets Louise Hay to come out and visit J-Lo in LA. And J-Lo like cannot believe that this woman is coming to see J-Lo. And it's like, J-Lo, who is this woman? (laughs) You're J-Lo. My favorite thing about the Louise Hay thing too is now that she realizes what self-love is, she's like, this is so amazing. And then she goes, we need to teach this to the children. Like we need to start a Barney show where we teach people what it really is to love themselves because that's such like an important key to life. And Louise goes, okay, Jennifer, slow down. Before you can teach anybody else, first you need to learn how to do it yourself. I'm like, thank God someone said something to J-Lo. <laughs> J-Lo is like, literally, these kids don't know that they should like themselves. My kids are just sitting around waiting for me to say that I think that their picture is good. But really, I should be telling them, you have to like your own crayon art. In this section, when she's doing all this work on herself, she's hit rock bottom and built herself back up. And she has the confidence to officially break up with Mark. We sat down together and I said, this is not working. You know it's not working. We're not living like a family and I don't see how things are going to change. He agreed and I continued. Neither of us is happy and the kids are wondering what's going on. I think we should move on with our lives. This was a line that shook me. I think to come in with a divorce, two kids involved and say, I think it's about time we just scooch forward with this one. This marriage is in the past. I think the thing between us is in the past. I think it's about time. Wait, can I on. say um, the way that her divorce turned her into a single mom and she talks about being a single mom. And of course I've never been a single mom and I'm sure that this is in some ways relatable, but she's like, now I have to be both things to my kids all the time. There is this sense that once she divorced Mark, Mark would just never meet those kids again. And I actually don't think he did. He had three kids already from a previous marriage. And I really do think that the deal with Mark Anthony is I will be the parent to the children of whatever mother I'm married to. For the finale of this tour, Mark Anthony comes out to perform their duet together because at this point their divorce is public everyone knows about it she's on this tour reclaiming herself as an individual also the last stop is in Puerto Rico and he's very famous there so she's like this is a huge publicity stunt but also to really wrap up the tour by saying like here we are on good terms I think she thinks it'll be powerful or something so he shows up for the rehearsal she's like the way the kids ran up to him they were so excited to see him and it's like is this not happening regularly? It so clearly isn't. It's really sad. <laughs> All of our least honest memoirists do the same thing where we're, they're talking about their lives. And because they're only giving us surface level things that they think are the most normal, least telling facts, when they say something that's a little bit weird, you're like, okay, the fact that they think that saying this is deeply normal and not a red flag is 
a bigger red flag because they're refusing to let us in. And so when they say something crazy, it's like, wow, they think that they're not giving us anything with this statement. And that's what's crazy. It's like on Lindsay Lohan's beach club when she asked the employees of the beach club to hook up with the clients in order to make them happy and didn't think that that was like an absurd literal prostitution request. And it just goes to show how fucked up and exploited Lindsay Lohan has been sexually that she does not even blink at asking somebody who is a waiter (laughs) to hook up with a customer is a boundary cross violation. For her to not know that that's a boundary violation shows that it's even worse in her brain. I want to read my favorite line from this book. She says, on July 15th, 2011, we made the public announcement that we were going to divorce. Hardest day ever. I thought that was crazy too, that the hardest day of her life was the public announcement and not the divorce. Not deciding to divorce, not the moments in their life that led to the divorce, not the other divorces. Also to punctuate it by saying hardest period, day period, ever period. It's like, is this a meme? But it doesn't matter because she's back now. You know, she's fixed. She had this tour. She's whole. She goes, always remember you will live, you will love, you will dance again. When I first thought of this mantra, I was doing the video for dance again. I want people to really understand what the song meant to me. It was a declaration that I needed so much in my life at that moment. And I know other people need it in difficult moments in their own lives. So there you go. There's things I'm going to get better. I just had to hold on. I was going to live. I was going to love and I was going to dance again. I just had to remember that. She also mentions that there are moments where she messes up. She says, gotten divorced. I've stumbled. I've fallen. But my choreographer told her, like, when you're learning a dance, sometimes you get the dance moves wrong and you just have to keep trying until you get it right. And she's like, and that's what I've learned about life. Sometimes you get the moves wrong, but you keep trying until you get it right. Lord knows she is still trying. And I also want to point out another key player in helping her get through this divorce was Nancy Myers and the movie Something's Gotta Give. <laughs> oh, my God. I exhilarated this, too. Tell them why. What specifically about Something's Gotta Give resonated so hard with J-Lo? She just loved the movie Something's Gotta Give. She would say, I must have watched that movie 10 times after the split. I'd be sitting there in my own nice house dreaming about buying a nice house like Erica Berry's in the Hamptons and creating my own Something's Gotta Give dream life. Max and Emmy would grow up to be amazing adults and they'd come visit me and I would end up being the kind of woman who's absolutely fine with sleeping in the middle of the bed all by myself. Thank God for Nancy Myers because that vision helped me get through some really tough nights. So the vision being, I do think she went on to buy like a $15 million Hamptons mansion. Hamptons <laughs> do you remember the story about the guy who was just like living in her guest house? Yes. Shout out to that guy. If he's listening, DM us. I also love this line. Nancy Myers helped me envision my dream life, but another woman helped me through those tough weeks in real life. My mom. (laughs) I just love the idea of being like, there are two people who pulled equal weight in getting me through this divorce. Nancy Myers for creating the movie Something's Gotta Give and my mom for physically being present and helping me through that. I also love that it's not like the movie itself. It was just, oh my God, the Hamptons look great. It took Nancy Myers to really sell the Hamptons to Jennifer Lopez. So you'll never believe this book ends with her finding self-love and being happy and dancing again. And it all worked out, as we know, 10 years later. She is definitely in a healthy, normal, (laughs) loving relationship that she didn't rush into that isn't for the PR and isn't just passion. She loves monogamy. It's all working out. Also, I want to point out that she mentions that Another really hard thing she did in her life was walking away from American Idol after two seasons. She said, what would a third season even do for me? Benny put his arm around me gently and asked, are you okay? And she said, yeah, it's just so hard to do. In some ways, walking away from Idol felt tied to walking away from Mark. It felt like the final act in a play, the inevitable emotional conclusion. And as we know, she did go back to Idol. For three more seasons, yeah. So, you know, it wasn't in every way 
an inevitable conclusion. <laughs> but in some ways, I guess it was and that she took a year off. So I don't actually think we'll ever get any truth out of Jennifer Lopez. But I do think that there is a world in which someone close to her will write like a tell all. Leah Remini. Leah Remini loves a tell all. If Jennifer Lopez ever stabs Leah in the back the way Scientology did, Leah will write a book about it and start a docuseries and a podcast. And, and she will win an Emmy. And she'll dedicate it to J-Lo's daughter, Emmy. I think that Jennifer Lopez has no concept of reality. So I don't know that she knows that her relationship to Ben is fake. And I don't think she remembers a single lesson that she pretends to have learned from this tour. Because again, she hasn't read the book. These are just lessons that a ghostwriter pulled together from watching her live shows and reading her Wikipedia page. And it is like a narrative. I mean, at the end of the day, it was publicly known that she had just gone through her third divorce. So they had to come through and they had to be like, we had to admit that there was a failure here. How do we make you as likable and redeemable and still somehow the winner of this as possible? This is a PR fluff piece. There were the few instances of truth that we accidentally got. I mean, of course, we're sitting here saying it has nothing to do with Jayla. But on the other hand, the patterns that she describes that she says she has fixed are a perfect description of the patterns that she's fallen in now. This idea that she can't be single for more than a minute. She jumps right in. She doesn't know the difference between passion and love, that she can never sit alone with herself, that she's scared of being single, that she cares so much about what the fans think of her love life. I also want to say that like this thing that we're saying, yes, we don't learn anything about her in this book, but I also think we learned so much about her because I don't think she doesn't seem to be that deep of a person. You said this maybe yesterday, just in conversation, but the kind of person who's willing to put out these fluff piece versions of memoirs, it is a very telling thing about who they are and what they want from public perception and what they want out of their career. Because Someone who wants to be taken seriously as an artist would not put out a nonsense thing like this and like would be more controlled about the narratives that go out about them, especially the ones with their names. This is one more PR statement for the product that is Jennifer Lopez. It is, you know, it's Domino's going in and saying, we knew our pizza sucked, but we made it so good now. It's still marketing to sell a product. It's not an honest, vulnerable experience of a human being. Right. But what I'm saying is it is telling for the types of celebrities who put out these nonsense versions. I think when we get a real memoir, it is We've talked a lot about the way it can launch a second phase of your career. She was obviously not looking for this to launch anything in her career. She was looking for this to be like an add-on, a narrative, something that would like get a couple articles written about her, something that would help push this narrative and help people understand what she's aiming for in her career right now. It was not in any way a relaunch. It was like a companion piece. I mean, it was a real PR statement. It was like, we can't trust Vanity Fair to do a profile, but we do need to put something out there. So we're just going to put it out ourselves. Yes. And it was shorter than a Vanity Fair profile. Yeah, It was a profile with no middleman. If you took out the journalism (laughs) of celebrity journalism, that's what we were left with. The kind of celebrity who co-signs these types of memoirs, it is telling. And it does say something about like what they want out of their career and like what they're trying to do in their life. What she's trying to do is stay relevant and not have you be mad at her. I agree. I also do think even though I don't know that JLo had a lot to say about this, it was a well-observed character like I do think that the analyses of what was happening and why she keeps failing are right on the money I think there's probably a little bit more to her childhood than just being the middle child I think if we were to look at her parents relationship there's not a lot about her dad in here obviously there's more to why JLo is who she is than just being the middle child I don't think the sweeping generalizations are wrong it is a pattern and it's a common pattern but it's not my pattern it's not your pattern yeah this book is like so written and composed but i also get the feeling that she is deeply 
composed. No, I do think her primary driving force is like, what will people think of this? And so in that sense, yeah, this puff piece reveals the thing that matters most to her is what do people think of me? What do you think about Benefer? So I fully believe the time it took between Madison LaCroix outing A-Rod as the cheater and the time it took for her to get out of that relationship was a PR bombshell nightmare. You know how they publicly were like, we haven't split up, even though we all knew they split up. That was her regrouping and figuring out what her next move is. I think Ben is an addict and he has not recovered. I'm sorry, but he is not a recovered addict. No, he is. He is so not. when you think about one of the most powerful controlled people in the world, Jennifer Lopez, not that Ben Affleck is some sad sack, but I do feel like he's a little bit more of a free agent in that he is not a brand that women are brands. He is not a fragrance or whatever. He He's seen more as an artist because he's like an Oscar winner. He's more serious. But he also has this freedom. If Ben Affleck tomorrow made another Argo, everyone would yeah, be like Yeah, nobody sick. cares. Whereas... Whereas if a woman went off the rails the way that mm-hmm. Ben Affleck has gotten this full back tattoo and spent like five years cheating on his wife and like tripping over iced coffees. Well, look at Blackout. Britney Spears's Blackout album was one of her best albums yeah. ever. It came out when she was publicly seen as trash and so nobody gave her album the time of day. J-Lo cannot do a world tour if we think she's a loser, but Ben can get an Oscar if we think he's a loser. But I do think... It is a good PR move for him. I feel like they're always trying to slowly rehab him. They put him with Anna de Armas. They put him with these people. And I think they're always trying to get, do everything they can to get you forget about his back at tattoo. But at the end of the day, he is still an alcoholic. He's fucked up. He's like a gambling addict, I think. And I think he got a call and he was like, yeah, it's a good match for both of us. I'm sure there's a lot of electricity there, but there's no way that that was an organic true relationship. It's a rebound for celebrities. It's like a PR rebound. And I do think it's very pathetic and sad to me. Do you think they know that it was choreographed or do you think that their team's parent trapped them I think it's a little bit of both I think in the way that when a normal person gets dumped they're like do you have any friends that you could go out with me I just need a rebound hookup because I know I'm sad and I know I need somebody to be on my arm I like to imagine that their managers stayed friends this whole time and they were like We've got to get our parents back together. You take them to this restaurant and I'll say we're going to the Stanford Hotel and you take them to the Stanford Hotel and at the pool, they'll see each other. I think in celebrity culture, it's so common that when one celebrity wants to hook up with another celebrity, you just call their people because everybody knows who everybody is, especially this couple. They've literally dated. And so I do think her manager was like, hey, I heard Ben's interested. But really, the manager had called Ben's manager and been like, I heard J-Lo's. And they both be like... Ben really wants to go out with you. And he's like, J-Lo really wants to go out with you. And so then they get them together and it's like a good PR thing. I don't know if they're actually hooking up. I'm sure there's a fondness. Of course, if you dated someone 20 years ago and you look the same, you're going to hang out. I don't think she wants to be with an addict. Like, I don't think she actually would ever yeah. seriously love him. But it is sad to me that she's 52 years old and she can't for a minute be on her own. That for the PR purposes, because they could have dated in secret if they had wanted to, but they didn't. Yeah. I mean, with the necklace, with the yacht photos, it's so disgusting. It's so clearly for the public perception that she won the breakup. And I just think it's so pathetic to be this old with two grown children and you can't just be single. Like breakups happen. I guess she doesn't want to be Jenny Aniston, the woman who's always, oh, she's so sad and alone. But why doesn't she have that? strength within herself to be able to handle being seen as the alone woman because she also doesn't have to be seen as the alone woman she could go away that's the thing is celebrities can step out of the spotlight for a little bit and then come back and still have everything when you're that famous I don't think everyone can do it but I do think Jennifer Lopez is at a level of extraordinary stardom where if she just 
left for six months, especially during a fucking pandemic. If we just didn't see her for a couple of months, then everyone would be like, what the fuck is JLo up to? I'm excited to hear about it. The whole thing was because like, God forbid she's ever not with a man. She needs to win, but it's all for public perception. That's why I think it's so sad. I feel like people are like, oh, she's this woman in her fifties and she's still so hot and she got back with her ex and it's so sexy and fun, but that's not what it is. It's a woman who is so afraid of being seen as the woman who can't get married that she's gallivanting around acting like a teenager on purpose to get photos because she wants people like me and Ashley and the listeners of this podcast to think she won her breakup. And that to me is the saddest thing of all, honestly. That's why I'm anti-Benefer. Also, he is an addict. He is not capable of loving or being loved right now. Ask Jennifer Gardner. When there's children, I'm like, go be a fucking dad. Get off the yacht, Ben. Jennifer Gardner is like making fresh bread for your children. And what are you doing? Grabbing ass on a yacht? Grow up. Get a room. Also, whenever there's yacht photos, I'm like, okay, you guys paid for this placement. Those photos were leaked by their personal photographer who was on the yeah. yacht with them. Those were paid for paparazzi photos. Also, like the whole whole olive oil thing. I remember reading in a magazine in W Magazine like 10 or 12 years ago, and they went through exactly what JLo's skin regimen was, and it was $50,000 a year worth of... Yeah, and also she has gotten work done. To say that she hasn't is insane. Well, this included like filler and Botox. And I remember my friend being like, really? I thought she just used sunscreen. And I was like, are you stupid? And that was back when I was in college. And so at this point, for her to say olive oil, I mean, I just think she just lies all the time. Everyone around her is a sycophant. Everyone's on her payroll. It's been so long. Look at her song, I'm Real, as sung by Ashanti. I don't even begrudge her. I don't dislike her at all. I don't think she's, I just think I don't trust the word out of her mouth. And I think her whole life is for PR. Again, I think that this is just the thing that she is. She's not a singer. She's not an artist. She is like a product and a marketing package and a celebrity first and foremost. And I think that that is fine. I think get that money, girl. But I hate the lying. I do hate the lying. And I don't think there's anything to fix. I don't think it's like, oh, go back to therapy. I think at her core, this is who she is. She was right. She's not someone who's meant to have a long relationship. She's in her 50s. She only has like 30 years left. The idea of finding someone to spend her life with, most of the life is gone. Anyone that she meets at this point is like, whoever her next person is, will get another chunk of her life. No hate to that. But like the dream is dead. What she claims in this book is her lifelong dream of having somebody that she spends her life with. I don't see it happening. Me either. I do wish the best for her and I wish for her. I have nothing against her. I like literally don't begrudge her any of this. I just think that. I want her to genuinely find her true self. I want the concept of this book to come true. I guess I think this is her true self. I think her true self is somebody who's very successful and seen as sexy and seen as beautiful and is always winning the public perception war. Most people are not on my side. I think most people, even if they think the Benefer thing was sort of staged, they're happy to see it. And in that way, the way that she's winning the culture war, the way that her old photos are resurfacing, the way that she's once again the it couple of the decade that everyone loves and is so sexy, I think that's her winning. And I think her true self, that's what it is. It's That's happiness to her. Good. I wish you the best, Jennifer. And I like Jennifer. I hate this book. And I love you, wormy squirms. We love you, wormies. Check out the Patreon. Join the Facebook group for a conversation. Yeah, where you guys can discuss if you agree or disagree with everything. And um, we'll see you next week. Love you. Love you. Bye.